to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Now we come to what is really the central section of the epistle to the Hebrews, certainly the longest, and it is the most detailed exposition of the whole of the epistle, the superiority of Jesus as our great High Priest and Savior. And that theme really goes right through from chapter 4, verse 14, to the middle of chapter 10 of the epistle to the Hebrews. We have a great High Priest, and that priest is Jesus, the Son of God. Now, we are introduced, as it were, to that central theme, in a sense, of the epistle, Jesus' superiority as the great high priest. And the reason the subject is of such central importance is really summed up in five words from chapter 5, verse 1. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1 in the, in the RSV, you'll find there is the phrase, men in relation to God. Now, the reason that Jesus' high priesthood is of such central importance is that the very core of human life, the key to man's happiness, the secret of his existence, the clue to his identity, and the heart of the human problem lies precisely here. That is, in the view of man, which brings us to the heart of everything important that you can ever say about man, and that is man in relation to God. Now, there is nothing so important as this in the whole universe. There is no area which demands our attention more urgently than this. The whole way the Bible teaches us to think of man in relation to God. And this, you see, is precisely the area that the priest deals with. He deals with this fundamental relationship of man in relation to God. Now, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, all the sicknesses of the world have been produced when men sought to view life from some other perspective than this, you see. The real anguish of the human situation is that man has thought it is possible to understand himself apart from this basic relation, or he has made some other relationship fundamental and that supplemental. But here is the very core of life. This is what everything revolves around, man in relation to God. That fundamentally is what has gone wrong. Now you see, this is why one can recognize the world so totally misunderstanding the Christmas message and distorting it indeed in our Christmas celebrations and in our moving towards Christmas. Somebody was speaking on the wireless the other day when I was driving home late at night. I heard somebody speaking in the wireless about the central message of Christmas, goodwill amongst men. Now that's the common heresy about Christmas, you see, that the heart of the message of Christmas is goodwill between man and man. 
But the fundamental message of Christmas is that God has come to do something about man's relationship with himself. It is God's good will towards men that Christmas is a message about. His good will expressed in Jesus Christ. And this is the clue to man's whole nature, to his history, to his destiny, to his present situation. Everything is gathered together in this. And the whole doctrine of the high priest centers upon this fundamental relationship. Now this is why we are to consider Jesus as the apostle in chapter 3 verse 1 and high priest of our confession. And there is nothing that we ourselves, my brothers and sisters, need so much as to give ourselves to pondering and considering as deeply as God enables us to consider it in these coming months, the office of our Lord Jesus Christ as the great high priest. Does that seem rather remote and esoteric to you? Well, now, it is absolutely crucial for our daily living. There is nothing that impinges on the whole issues of your daily life, the battles you've been fighting today, your plans for the future, your thinking about yourself, your place in modern life. There is nothing so vital as an understanding of the doctrine of the great high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ because... It is here that this fundamental relationship that rules all others is brought to be what God meant it to be. Now verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4 are really introductory to this great theme. And they immediately present us, you will notice, with the supreme glory of Jesus' priesthood over all others especially over the Levitical priesthood. And he begins, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now the Levitical priest, you will remember, on the Day of Atonement, that day that has almost been written into history in recent times because of the war which broke out on the Day of Atonement in Israel, the Day of Atonement was the day when the high priest, the only day in the year when he passed through the veil that there was in the temple, the veil in the sanctuary symbolizing an entry into the presence of God. And he bore with him as he entered through that veil, disappearing from the gaze of the company of Israel who had seen him offering the sacrifice for their sins, symbolically laying his hands upon a scapegoat, that word that has come into our language too, and driving this goat out into the wilderness. And the symbolism was that the sins of the people passed to the animal. And one of these animals was taken out into the wilderness by the hands of a fit man. And there in the no man's land of desolation, it was taken and loosed without the camp of great significance. And the other animal was slain and was an offering. And he took the blood of that atonement into the 
presence of God symbolically, as it were, and disappeared from the gaze of the people. Now, says the writer of the epistle, our great high priest has passed not through a symbolic veil into a symbolic place. He has passed through the heavens into the real presence of the living God and there appears now for us. And this is our great high priest. That that we see in Leviticus chapter 16 is the shadow. This is the reality and here is one of the ways that Hebrews has taught us as we found earlier to look at the Old Testament in relation to the New. It is the relation of promise to fulfillment. It's the relation of shadow to reality. And there is the shadow you see. Now all down Israel's history they were whether they knew it or not pointing forward to the reality. And the writer of the epistle says, the reality has come, beloved. We have the great high priest who has passed through the heavens and into the presence of God for us, bearing his own blood and there appears on our behalf. And as he has entered into the presence of God, you will notice how he is described. He has passed through the heavens, this great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Now it's of great significance that these two titles are put together because more than once already in this epistle, Jesus has been set before us in all his glory as the high priest and savior in his two natures. He is fully and absolutely and truly human. His manhood is a true manhood. And the name Jesus is the human name of God above. It's his human title. And the other title, Son of God, is the one that speaks to us of his full and perfect divinity. And as truly man and truly God, he is now in the presence of God as our great high priest. Now it is because that we have a great high priest of such a kind that we are exhorted to hold fast. You notice at the end of verse 14. Let me remind you once more that this epistle to the Hebrews was not written for an academic but for a practical purpose. It's not an academic treatise. It is a practical letter written to Christians who were in danger of sliding back. They were in danger of being cast down and in some cases apparently in danger of falling away. They were under pressure. And they were in the kind of condition that many of us find ourselves in, many of us may find ourselves in this very evening. Now what is the answer to that condition? I am constantly coming back to this because I think it's something we need to grasp. What is the answer to this condition of being spiritually low, as we say? Being cast down, being beleaguered and depressed being in danger of feeling that we are about to slide back. 
being under all the pressures that the apostle speaks about later on in this epistle, when he sets before them all that the men of faith have gone through, and he says, this is what you are going through now. What is the answer to it? Well, the answer to it is not to seek some kind of sudden press the button, pull the lever, put your money in and get out the answer in some slick form. And my dear friends, that's what people so often try to do at such a time. There is a frantic searching often for something that will give you an easy and quick answer to this. But you know, the answer to it is the answer I was quoting to you from John Newton the other evening. Ponder the glories of a crucified, risen, and reigning Redeemer. Ponder the glories of Jesus, the crucified, risen, and reigning Redeemer. That will be to thee a better portion than any apothecary's. And this is what these people are being urged to do. Hold fast, he says. Now, on what basis is it that he is urging them to hold fast? Well, it is because we have a high priest who is now in the presence of God appearing there for us. Perseverance, you see. Christian perseverance, even when everything is against us, is a possibility. Primarily because Jesus has entered into heaven and secured an eternal salvation for us. That's the significance of his entry. And his redeemed and glorified humanity being in the presence of God now is the guarantee that one day my redeemed glorified humanity will be there too. That's the point of it. He is what the author of Hebrews calls the anchor for our souls within the veil. Now you see the picture. Here you are being tossed around on the sea with all the chaos of storm and tempest breaking upon your life. And you sometimes cry out in fear. How are you going to hold fast? And he says, let us hold fast seeing we have a great high priest who is entered into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Look over, will you, to chapter 9 of this uh, epistle. Is it, no, it's chapter 6, I'm sorry. It's chapter 6. Several too many. Now you notice this. Um, Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, here he is again, you see, wanting to ground them on God's unchangeable purpose. We have an eternal salvation and Jesus has gone into the presence of God to secure it for us. Now he says, since God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he interposed with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it was impossible that God should prove false, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this 
as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you see the significance of Jesus then? Entered into the presence of God. He's like an anchor. Now you see, if you have anchored your soul in Jesus, then no matter what the storm may be, you're being drawn in. You're being drawn in. The end of the anchor is in glory. You're at the other end of it. And what happens, you see, when the anchor is pulled in is that you are going to be drawn towards the anchor. And there is an absolute assurance on which God has staked his word that that anchor is sure and steadfast. And we have an encouragement, therefore, to hold fast our confession. That is to hold fast our faith, our trust, our confidence in God. The point is, you see, that Jesus' presence there is the guarantee of our ultimate presence there. Nothing in heaven or earth or hell can shake the fact for fact it is that if you are God's child this evening, come what may happen, what will, you will one day be presented faultless where he has gone in as the anchor for the soul because that anchor will never fail. Never. You may fail, of course you will fail, and fall and trip and go through all kinds of experiences in your life, weakness, fear, failure of every sort. That anchor in the veil will never fail. And that's the great encouragement. But there's more encouragement than that, you see. In the meantime, it's all very well to look to that day when we have an anchor within the veil. But in the meantime, having a great high priest who has entered in means that there are immeasurable blessings here and now in this life. It's not just a case of hold on in the meantime. There are blessings here and now in this life. First, the sympathetic ministry of our Lord Jesus as my high priest in verse 15. We have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize. The King James Version beautifully is unable to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now you see here in this veil of tears and with all the pressures and tribulations through which God's children pass in this world, It is not that we have one who is remote in the heavens, but one who by virtue of being the kind of high priest he is, who has embraced our weaknesses, who has taken our nature, and who therefore as no one else in the universe is able to understand every detail 
of our weakness and suffering, he is able to come and to sympathize with our weakness. I'm sure we cannot ponder enough what it means. As Willie McKinley said to me, strangely, the last Wednesday evening he was here, I was standing out in that vestibule, and as we walked together towards the stair, he said to me, isn't it an amazing thing to think that Jesus could have suffered every infirmity and understood it? He said, surely he can't really have entered into all my weaknesses. And as we talked together, as we parted, he said, that's the most precious thing I've discovered for a long time. To think that Jesus knew every pang that rends the heart. And that therefore as he draws near to us and draws us near to him, there is not an area where your foot has trod, but Jesus has experienced it before you. There is not a burden that you are carrying or ever will carry, but Jesus has borne it and experienced it. Now you all know what it means, don't you, when somebody has come through this kind of thing? Somebody said to me in hospital not long ago, Oh, I have the most marvelous experience. I found somebody who had had my operation here in this ward. And you know how people are delighted to tell you about their operations? hospital wards and this man had come to tell him all about his operation he said just to know somebody who has gone through it before me he said but you know you take that and multiply it by infinity and think what it means that there is no temptation now do you shy away from that no temptation that he has not experienced well, that's what the writer of the epistle says. That's what God is telling us. No temptation, no testing, no area you have ever had to go through. But Jesus has been there. And therefore, he comes to us and says, My child, I know exactly how to take you through this. You just trust me because I know exactly how to take you through this bit. He sympathizes with our weakness. Now you know what sympathy means, don't you? Suffering together with, it simply means just a Greek word for suffering together with someone. But when you think of human sympathy, that can sometimes help. But when you think of the sympathy that there is in the heart of Jesus, then that's something that can lift you right up from it all into his presence to be clasped to his bosom and to experience there the very heart of God going out towards you, grasping you in his embrace and pouring healing into your soul. He sympathizes with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief, we sang. 
And Jesus knew what pain and fear and sorrow and loneliness and bodily weakness and mental exhaustion and tears and crying and sighing all meant. And all the pressures of hell let loose upon him. And so he understands, but more than understands, do you notice, he undertakes. Incidentally, I think it must have been at the prayer meeting, when we had a prayer meeting in the summer, we we looked at these verses. And I remember pointing out then that some people have found it difficult to understand how Jesus could really experience all their testing and know the full weight and strength of it when he never sinned without sinning. But you see, if you think about it more carefully, the person who understands and experiences the ultimate strain is not the person who gives in, but the person who holds out. The ultimate strain in a tug of war is not borne by the side that collapse. The ultimate strain is borne by the side that hold on. Take the strain, we say. Where does the real strain lie? It lies with those who hold on to the end. Now Jesus knew a strain, therefore, that you and I never know because we are not sinless. And there is something very important for us to grasp here. He understands and he undertakes, verse 16. Let us then, let us therefore, because of this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It is not just sympathy that he gives, you see, but free access into the endlessness, the fathomlessness of the riches of God's mercy and grace. Sometimes when you're in this situation, you're driven to God and know that it is mercy that you're needing. Like the psalmist in Psalm 123, have mercy upon us, O God, he says. All he can cry to God for is mercy. Well, now in that place, there is mercy, there is grace, there is healing for the torn heart. And there is grace to help. In time of need. Now that's what this free access is. And beloved, that's what the priesthood of all believers means, you see. Let us therefore, all of us, think of Israel. They were all standing outside. The solitary figure of the high priest went in through the veil and disappeared from their view as Jesus disappeared in his ascension in order to appear in the presence of God for us and then at the end of time to reappear in glory. But the high priest went in and disappeared and the people stood outside remote from God. But Jesus says to us now, draw near. He has opened a new and living way through the veil. That is to say, his rent flesh. And he says, come in to the presence of God. That's the priesthood of all believers. It's access To God in all his riches for every child of God, however simple and ordinary, however sinful and needy, it's access. 
See, the priesthood of all believers has nothing to do with the teaching ministry of all believers. We have distorted that doctrine so dreadfully. And people speak about the priesthood of all believers as if it meant the ministry of all believers as teachers. That's got nothing whatever to do with it. What the apostle is speaking about is the priesthood which gives access into the presence of God for all believers. It means that there is nothing between. We are right in there. And God is there, and the riches of his grace are there. And oh, how appalling that we remain poverty-stricken. Let us draw near, he says. That's the answer to your trouble. Draw near, draw near. And there is mercy and grace to help in time of need. Now in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, we come to the functions and the qualifications of the high priest and how Jesus fulfills them all in unique perfection and glory. And he is now beginning to elaborate a little on the the high priest. And then in verse 11, he pauses for a little while and uh, comes to this, this note of warning which punctuates so much of the epistle to the Hebrews we've been finding and is wondering whether they're taking it all in. But anyway, beginning of chapter 5, he turns to the functions and qualifications of the high priest. Notice his functions, first of all, are first to deal with God on behalf of men in relation to their sins. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's the first function. Secondly, to deal with sinful man in his ignorance and waywardness. Verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So even the high priest, that is the high priest in the Levitical order, was able to deal gently or should have been qualified to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He knew these very same weaknesses. And the qualifications for the high priest, first he must be appointed by God, not by himself. Verse 1 of chapter 5, for every high priest, and notice the emphasis on this, only God can appoint a high priest. Nobody else. He cannot appoint himself. And no man can appoint him. Only God. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. He doesn't appoint himself. He is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Then verse 4, And one does not take the honor upon himself, but he is called by God, just as Aaron was. And verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And verse 10, Being designated, that is the son, being designated by God a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So he must be appointed by God. Now that's an important principle. Whenever men in relation to God are seeking to have sin dealt with, they must look to God to ask 
whom he has appointed as a high priest. And there is only one. And this appointment is made by God. The second qualification for the high priest is he must be taken from among men. Verse 1 of chapter 5, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now see briefly in these closing moments how Jesus perfectly fulfills these. First, he acts on behalf of men in relation to God, offering sacrifices and gifts. That was the task of the high priest. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now the high priest did that, you see. They were chosen and appointed by God. They offered gifts and sacrifices in order to deal with sin. But there was one fatal flaw. And that was that the Levitical priesthood offered sacrifices which could not make perfect, in the words of the epistle to the Hebrews, those on whose behalf they were being offered. And the perfection of Jesus as the high priest who offered the perfect sacrifice is displayed in chapter 9. Now here is the point of Jesus' sinlessness. The reason it's so important to say he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, is this. That Jesus, as the great high priest, was the first high priest who had no sins of his own to make atonement for. If Jesus had not been sinless, he would have been no different from all this line of priests through the Levitical line who had failed to cleanse the conscience. To bring an eternal salvation, a sure hope of glory to God's people. Because they had sins of their own to make atonement for and their offering was always imperfect. Jesus had no sin of his own to atone for. He was the perfect high priest in this sense, but in the other sense. He was not only the sacrificer. He was the sacrifice. And that sacrifice had to be as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Perfect. And as he was offered up as the lamb of God, that offering had to be without spot and without blemish. Perfect. And Jesus in his sinlessness is the perfect priest and the perfect offering in one. And this is where Jesus' priesthood is perfect and the Levitical priesthood imperfect. Look over to chapter 9. I knew I wanted you to look at chapter 9 sometime this evening, and now here it is. Chapter 9, verse 6. These preparations, he is speaking of all the preparations under the first covenant, the regulations for worship and the earthly sanctuary and so on. Verse 6 of chapter 9. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go continually. That is, once will not do. They go continually because one offering hasn't achieved what they were seeking. They go continually into the outer tent performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and every year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, do you notice? 
for himself, for his own sin, and for the errors of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary is not yet opened as long as the outer tent is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various ablutions, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There is the perfection of Jesus as our high priest, dealing with God in relation to man's sin perfectly. Then he deals with sinful men in their ignorance, that's what we've been reading about partly here. But do you notice the words of verse 2? They're rather important. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, it's a very interesting verse, that, and would that we had more time to uh, pause on it, but we don't. Let me just say this to you. Only Jesus deals with our waywardness perfectly. The tendency, you see, of the high priest in the Levitical order was that he would be affected by the fact that his sympathy arose from his own failure. Now you think of how we deal with the waywardness of other people. There are two dangers, aren't there? There is the danger that we are over-strict and over-harsh with people who have fallen in ways that we have not. And we are under-strict and perhaps under-severe with those who have fallen in ways that we have. But you see, Jesus being sympathetic to the sinner does not mean that he is apathetic about the sin. And he deals perfectly with our waywardness and our ignorance in sin, as he did with that woman. Do you remember the woman in adultery? How gently Jesus dealt with her. I think Jesus deals in this gentle way with people, and yet sometimes it can be so powerful and shattering, but it's gentle. And he said to her, where are your accusers, Lassie? Where have your accusers gone? I don't know, Lord, Jesus. And he said, neither do I condemn thee. That was his sympathetic love and care. 
But then, go and never do it again. And that is his refusal to be apathetic about sin. Only Jesus can deal with our waywardness rightly. And we need to learn something of this, do we not? As we seek to be pastors under shepherds to people. Oh, but the time is gone. And there's so much else that we will have to leave it to next week. Christ became the high priest appointed by God. He became the high priest who was taken from among men and perfect man and perfect God. He knew what it was with strong crying and tears, as the authorized version says, with strong crying and tears to pray and supplicate the throne of grace. And he was heard. So he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He is the source of eternal salvation. Now that's the anchor. Can you take an anchor out with you this evening? Take an anchor out into the world. And Jesus is that anchor, the source of an eternal salvation. And say, Lord, I'm at the other end of that unbreakable chain. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again unto a living Lord, we bless thee for thy lavish provision for sinners redeemed by sovereign grace in our journey through this world from grace to glory. And we bless thee that thou hast forgotten nothing. Thou hast left nothing undone to secure our eternal salvation. And we rest in thee this evening, Lord. We thank thee for the Sabbath rest thy people have in thee. And we pray that thou wilt bear us out this evening into the world around us glorying in this anchor we have within the veil, whither the forerunner for us has entered, even Jesus, the Son of God, to whom with thee, Father, and the Holy Spirit, be unending praise and glory and majesty, now and forevermore. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org. 
where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.